This chapter forms part of episode 40 of the Education Research Reading Room podcast on online learning. Before listening, I highly recommend that you listen to the chapter introduction in order to get a sense of what's in this chapter as well as each of the other six. And if you enjoy this chapter, please share it with friends and colleagues. Chapter 3, Stephen Kolber on Creating Instructional Videos. In this episode, we speak to Stephen Kolber, an expert in instructional video and flipped learning. Stephen speaks about the shift towards online learning, how he approaches remote learning, and the idea of making content asynchronously available for your students. Stephen Kolber, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks for having me along. Stephen, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm an English teacher primarily. I teach literacy and things like that in my local high school. And what I'm really excited about is instructional video and flipped learning and getting teachers to experience what it feels like to do their direct instruction via video. So in this time, obviously, that's pretty useful. And all of a sudden, people are kind of, after five years of doing it, they're starting to come around and say, hey, that thing that you've been talking about for the last five years, I think we might need to use that all of a sudden. So (laughs) that's been my experience of the last couple of weeks. Your time has come, Stephen. That's right, yeah. Um, So what kind of subjects and age groups do you teach? Uh, This year I'm teaching uh, years 8, 10 and 11, Um, but pretty much from year 7 to year 11 are mostly where I teach. Um, Mostly I've become increasingly an EAL teacher, so English is an additional language and that just means that I get to have smaller classes and really focus on video and how you can then transform the sort of classroom space especially with small classes is sort of something I've been working on for the last three or four years. That's great. Um, what got you interested? So today we're kind of focusing and honing in on one specific um, part of online learning, that is instructional videos. What, what got you interested in instructional videos in the first place? Um, so basically because I'm sort of an expert at the middle years, so 8, 9, 10 mostly, um, I, as an, and as an English teacher, you repeat a lot of the same content because the skills and the knowledge are essentially quite similar across that platform. And so I basically four or five years ago, after delivering the same PowerPoint on, I think, poetic techniques, so there's, you know, 20 or 30 of them, for probably the fourth fourth year in a row, I felt like, well, this is this resource is as good as it's going to get. I'm not going to be able to, like, you know, improve upon this, having taught it for so many years. Mm. And so I just sat, I was like, maybe I could record it. Um, and so I sat down and sort of worked out a way to record my screen and put my face in the corner. And then basically for the five years after that, I've never taught that same content ever again. Like I never actually had to express it to students. I just said, here's the video to watch. Here's the activity I want you to do. And that meant that I could focus on the types of activities that students that I could make to make students prove that they had watched the video rather and actually apply the content rather than just delivering the same thing, standing at the same place in the room with the same clicker and the same PowerPoint. So to me, I would say that's transformed my kind of approach to teaching ever since, just because once I've got something to the point where it's good enough to deliver to students in a video, then I know that I don't actually ever have to directly teach that to any students and I just focus on assessing and kind of clarifying key points and misunderstandings Mm. in the same way like from my experience maths teachers are really good at kind of asking hinge questions and those sorts of things as an English teacher that doesn't happen as much because you're just delivering content far too often and so that's allowed me to do those sort of things cool how do you know 
that you've got content to the point that you say it's not going to get any better and and how does that relate to where teachers are at currently around the world where they maybe don't have the time to get content to the point that it's not going to get any better ah yeah that's a good point um for me i guess that was that was the impetus way back when that's what started me off on it so things like poetic techniques things like uh, literary devices are kind of the things that are always the same in my subject area and they're always consistent and so that's something that I decided, well, this is something that can be done and won't get much better. But invariably, like, I mean, in the last, I think it's four years, I've made 420 videos. So I can guarantee that not all of those uh, were as good as they're ever going to be, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they kind of, I, that's where I would start if I was a person producing video, just because you want content that's, we call it evergreen. So it's always good. Um Increasingly, like I do specific stuff for specific year levels and specific texts, but the things that really hang around and have kind of longevity are those evergreen things that I've taught to a point where I feel like they're really strong. Mm-hmm. In your standard classroom, when when do students watch the videos? Do you kind of do a flip thing and tell them to watch it at home, or do you just get them get them in the classroom and start watching it there and then? Um, at the start, like I I did it in a very strict sort of flipped learning model, so. It would always be done before class and then any students that hadn't done it would kind of go to a separate section of the class and catch up and get up to date from there. Um, But increasingly, like with any pedagogy, I just use it flexibly. So depending on where the students are at, I mean, there are times when I might, you know, actually present stuff in person that I have already on video, just depending on where the students are at and what they need, whether they struggle with motivation or whatever. but yeah, I think it's the more flexibly you can use it, the better. It's just kind of, it's not even necessarily a pedagogical choice. It's just a way of making your direct instruction available to sort of the whole world and to anyone at any time. And then the pedagogy that you approach from there, like I'm not really fussed, as long as you've got the skill set, then I think you can begin teaching globally rather than worrying about sort of a set pedagogy. Okay. Before you mentioned about focusing on some um, strategies to ensure that students have done it, watched it and done the stuff, um, what kind of things do you do to ensure that? Um, Ideally, you want, basically, you want face-to-face interaction. So you want students in groups, you want them in teams, you want them doing, I don't know, cahoots in teams collaboratively, doing your kind of straight-up retrieval practice. You just want to focus on getting students to firstly retrieve it and then secondly apply it so there's a million different ways to do it Um, most recently I've been pretty excited by Socratic circles and getting my students to kind of do student-led conversations so they all sit in a circle and kind of discuss the things that I expect them to and so that's very much not me at the front of the class but rather them building their knowledge together and that feels a lot more kind of real world and authentic but there's millions of different ways to do it. Um, it's just one of those things, once you've got the skill set of producing video, then you're freed up, kind of your mental capacities are freed up to think about other ways of doing it. And you have more time in class to actually do those things as well. Okay, what, what are some of your plans of how to, some of the activities you're gonna use online with students over the next few months? Uh, there's The one I'm really looking forward to is we're doing language analysis, which is just looking at persuasive techniques and things like that. Um, so I've got a couple of gamified units that are, I think one's Donald Trump performing a speech. And so you hear about a 10 second clip of him speaking. And then your job is to decide which persuasive technique was used in that section. 
and it's kind of like a bingo game so you cross them off as you go and obviously it becomes increasingly easy as you cross them off and there's fewer left and so forth and then there's a couple for Hillary Clinton and all sorts of famous people in the same structure so that's how I would assess students understanding of the literary devices which is a video in and of itself and kind of get them get them get them engaging with it in an authentic and gamified way and then their task after that will be to um, probably in groups create a, a kind of activity like that so pick out a speech look at the transcript annotate it and then use video to kind of turn that into an activity similar to that okay so you talked about three things then you talked about collaborate you talked about um analyze speech and you talked about make video how what technologies and how do you plan on facilitating that for students sure um the the screen recorder tool that i use is just called obs studio um there's other ones called screencaster and screencastify that do more or less the same thing but obs is free and it doesn't cost anything um, and so I've taught year eight students how to use this software like it's, you know, there's probably five buttons they need to click once they've installed it. And so I can teach that to them remotely, obviously, because I'll make a video of what how they make a video uh, and then they'll be sharing that with us. Um, another tool I might use would be Flipgrid, so short video responses, kind of like a video conversation app that Microsoft has recently bought out, which helps. Uh, and so that just means that they can make short videos without any technical tools required apart from basically logging in and clicking a button uh, and then OBS will be sort of for the more advanced students who want to do the sorts of things that I do in my classroom practice. Okay, um, in terms of analysing the text, how, do you, how, how are students going to collaborate f around that? Uh, we use a tool called Kami which is um, there's another one called Perusal, which is a similar thing, uh, but basically, and of course you can do it in a Google Doc or just a shared um, Word document as well, but you basically, you just want multiple students in whatever technological form is preferable, annotating or leaving notes alongside a text. Um, I'd usually model, when I do it for my students, I usually model it with kind of a document camera and annotating a real book because invariably we're looking at um, novels and novellas, so actual physical texts. Um, but if it's a digital thing, as sort of articles usually are, it's a lot easier to just do that in via a digital means and have multiple students in a document. Okay. Um, what? How do you spell Kami? Uh, K A M I. Cool. And while students and um, collaborating on these kind of things, would you expect them to also be on a live chat with each other at the same time? Uh, it just depends on internet, internet really and how how well that's working at the time when we're using it. Um, but like, you know, for the academic reading group that I run, we, we do both, but we do, it, do, do them separately rather than live. So you're leaving short video comments and you're also annotating the article in a collaborative way. Uh, but I don't think video is necessary. Um, obviously, it would make it better and more engaging for the students. But if that's not possible, then these tools are kind of our relatively less bandwidth hungry sort of options. Mm, okay. So, when do they use Flipgrid to do that short video conversation, um, commenting on the annotations? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, any I've other, done that before. Any other, yeah. any other methods or tools? Uh, for annotating, 
basically those are all the digital ones. Um, in the past, I've used OneNote, um, which works better if you have some a device like a Surface Pro with a stylus or any stylus-enabled device. So then you have the text sort of on the screen and you can have multiple people writing in usually different colors and sort of building on one another's work as mm-hmm. well as leaving notes and comments as they do it. Um, but I think that as well as the other ones I mentioned are pretty much the whole spectrum of how to do it. Okay, and and in terms of the video, leaving video kind of comments about your annotations, is Flipgrid the only tool you'd use for that? Um, yeah, probably Flipgrid or OBS Studio or something because you sort of want to te- leave the tech skills as limited as possible if you're obviously working with students, especially year eight kids in this situation. Um, so I keep it as low tech as possible in that situation. Okay, so a student, and then does this all sit within some larger learn learning management system that you plan on using or you do use with your students? Or because I can imagine if there's like from what I'm hearing, OBS Studio is a way for them to just record their screen, right? And mm-hmm. then I imagine that creates a link, and then they have to paste the link somewhere. Maybe that goes in the Google Doc. Could you talk us through the whole process a little bit in a bit more detail? Yeah, sure. Um, so in my kind of non-school professional life I use Google a fair bit and then in my school life I use Microsoft but there's kind of solutions for both things basically but uh, our school's ahead of most that we've spoken to in the sense that we're fully on board Microsoft Teams already so we have an LMS as well where you know you can just post text comments and Word documents and PowerPoints and such but Microsoft Teams is the place where it backs up to SharePoint so students can actually share actively share the files that they put together there. So we would be saying OBS would output a video that we would then upload to files that would then have multiple students be able to kind of engage with and work with from there. So say at the start of the year, that's where I did a lot of audio feedback for students' essays and that's that all went into files so they can hear their own feedback and other students' feedback and all those sorts of things. Um. So I'm just logging onto Teams now. When you say files, so in Microsoft Teams, you can create classes. Yeah. Um, and then within classes, is there a heading that says files? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so how do you kind of keep that stuff ordered for students so they know what's what and where and things like that? Uh, so we just have separate channels. So, for example, my Year 11 English class has their creative response as a channel language analysis as a channel and their oral presentation as a channel so far. Obviously, there'll be more units as the year goes on. But so in the files section of each of those, there's a class notebook that's specifically all the content they'll be using for there. And then the files are only files for that particular thing. So it just keeps things a lot more streamlined than when we used to just use OneNote. It would kind of become this sort of overly full thing because teachers were like, well, I can post everything there and it becomes it became a lot more cumbersome than it needed to be for students to access, whereas Teams has forced us to kind of be a little bit more considerate of how we manage our files and where they all go. Okay, what's a channel? All right, so basically in your team, the channel runs down the left-hand side and Mm -hmm. you can make as many or as few of those as you like. And then within each channel, you have sort of your posts, which is where all your students are posting comments to one another and you can give feedback there. Then the files... There's a section where only teacher materials go and are sort of locked. And then apart from that, everything else is open to every, everyone. And so you can get students to post things there, copy links, and send them to people, download from there, do all those sorts of things. Mm. So it's just 
a central place for all of your learning resources. And then we just sort of, the only part that we don't really use very effectively is the assignments tab. And we just do that through our own school-based LMS and then leave leave this primarily as a learning space rather than an assessment place as well. Is there a reason why you keep the, the LMS? I assume you use Compass or something like that? Yeah, we do. Yeah. Is there a reason why you keep that separate from assignments? Because, um, you know, I got some students to submit some things via assignments um, in, mm -hmm. in Microsoft Teams and I also got some, them to submit some stuff via Compass and assignments was so much easier to mark. Um, the students' work automatically came up. I had a rubric that I'd um, embedded that I could quickly mark based upon, whereas for Compass, I had to download every file individually and to my desktop and then up, open it and that was just a massive hassle. So is there a mm -hmm. reason why you, you're doing it that way? Um, so yeah, well, last year I was in charge of assessment and reporting, and so the basically all of my decisions uh, were th the primary thought was workload, mm -hmm. and so assignments, though it's smooth, invariably if you're at our school anyway, it has to at some point end up on Compass, which becomes our continuous reporting and is uploaded sort of very regularly to students and parents. So even though that's a very good option for us. Um, it just means that then there's a layer of double handling or in some cases, triple handling. And so we try and minimize that as much as we can because we feel reporting should be feedback to students rather than sort of a massive workload impact, which I can imagine might happen if you're jumping across multiple platforms in that way. Mm. Yep, okay. Um we're getting into detail about Teams versus Compass here. I understand probably a few listeners, especially international listeners, this won't be that relevant to, but but I'll I'll grill you on this at the end of the interview when we've when we stop recording because I want to I want to discuss this in more detail. I'm very interested in it. That's great. Okay. Um, why uh, there's probably a few teachers out there who plan to or perhaps have been kind of teaching live via. Zoom or something like that rather than recording videos. Um, what are your thoughts on that approach? Um, so like the model at our school is pretty straightforward. Um, we've, we've got our existing LMS type stuff, which is as, you know, where you post things, do this work, go to this chapter. Uh, we've got a big focus on asynchronous video content that students can ant uh, kind of access at any time. And then our third mode is basically your online online teaching through Zoom, we're using Microsoft Teams Meets, of course, because that takes place within the right ecosystem for us. And obviously, you can record it and it saves automatically to stream. So for that, for us, that's a very streamlined process. Um, but to me, I think what people misunderstand is that uh, obviously, we're expecting students to just turn up at normal times. Um, but that's just not a reality for most students' homes. Like, if I think of something just as simple as my wife and I live in a relatively big house and we're both kind of teachers, so over the last week we've been meeting with a whole range of people, um, but you still have that necessity to kind of, you know, segment the house or divide it in half and go, I'll be down this end of the house kind of mm. talking to meeting number whatever and then she will be at the other end of the room doing the same thing and that's a large house with only two people in it. If you think of most households, you're talking five people plus. Uh, and for most students, like there isn't necessarily a quiet place to study, especially disadvantaged students. And so to me, that's kind of the social justice piece that you're trying to work around. Um, there'll be students who won't have as reliable internet as others. And again, you don't want them to be necessarily disadvantaged. And obviously, there's students without any internet access at all. And so the further you move up those three sort of 
elements, the higher the bandwidth goes. And so the live meeting, though, it seems cool and fancy. Um, like I think that my experience at my school anyway was that for most people, this is the first time they've ever done an online meeting. So they're kind of instantly in love with it and excited by it. Mm. Um, but I guess they haven't been doing it for as long as, say, you or I may have. And so they haven't really thought about the kind of complexities and the issues that can emerge as a result of that. Um, or just the broader picture, which is that not everyone can access that as reliably as others, let alone at all. And so that's kind of something that you don't want to lean on too much. Mm. And then even the recording, like the reason we we record video asynchronously or post it asynchronously is because that gives us, um, as I said before, for me, I feel like my standard is pretty high. Like I'll if I stuff it up, I'll start again and I'll edit and I'll cut out things and I'll produce something that I think is worthy of my students' time. Um, I don't know. Student motivation is something that is a big challenge. And, uh, you know, for us, 72-minute online lesson is a long time to focus for a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old student mm. or person. And so you really don't want to kind of make that be a primary means of direct instruction if you're if you're just lecturing or even if you're not, like that's still just a long amount of time to sort of have students focused in one place. How long are your videos generally? What's a good length? Um, all the research that I've read, uh, some people say six to 10, um, but anyone that works with YouTube or with um, MOOC type stuff, you're aiming for three minutes at most. So, and the way you avoid that obviously is that you chunk things. So obviously you can't really teach say a year 12 physics lesson in three minutes uh, but you can you should be able to teach one concept in three minutes so there'll be a playlist of say my year 11 english has 50 videos sitting in there and they're all between three and four minutes sometimes two minutes and so you're directing specific students to specific videos at specific times rather than just saying watch this one hour lecture that i just made on you know Macbeth or anything like mm. that you, you try and keep it short and especially remote learning because you know, you're all of a sudden on a computer competing with Fortnite and Snapchat and TikTok and all sorts of other more engaging things than a, a 10 minute long speech that you've made and recorded online. Mm. Okay. Um, so let's drill down a little bit to, to the actual screencasting process. Could you talk us through exactly how you'll kind of plan a lesson, what you'll be recording. Will you be recording with like a document camera that you're writing something or will it be your screen? Do you include your face there? Um, do you have to do any workarounds to get your face on the screen? Um, and then in terms of uploading and filing that document for students to see and things like that. Okay. Um, so I guess when I, when I speak about this sort of stuff at conferences, um, there's a whole bunch of different levels. I've been doing this for, like I said, four or five years. So there are different levels of complexity and different levels of production value as well. So invariably, my go-to for me is uh, I've got like two large light box photographic lights set up in one of my rooms. I've got a retractable green screen. I've got a tripod that's about two meters tall because that's how tall I am. I've got uh, about a thousand dollars of uh, DSLR kind of camera sitting on top of it. Um, so that's my go-to and then I go in and I remove the green screen put the slides or the content that I'm talking about behind the video and then edit out any boring bits or you know miss missteps or misspeaking 
at school, I'd be using our light board, so big piece of glass writing on the board, drawing diagrams. Our maths department's been pretty pretty on board using that sort of thing at our school. So they go in and you know draw equations and diagrams and do all that sort of stuff there. And then coming right back down to a more reasonable level, um, in the last week I've just been using OBS Studio to record, say, a PowerPoint uh, with my face in the corner. And then going even lower than that, um, you know, I could just get out my phone and record a video using that and a built-in microphone and then post it online. Uh, document camera is a, is a luxury if you've got it, but if you don't, just, you know, put your, put your iPhone or whatever phone you've got somewhere above a piece of paper and then you've got a document camera that hasn't cost you anything except for some sticky tape to stick it somewhere above it. Um, so there's a million different ways to do it, none better than than the other, but there are different kind of levels of professionalism. I kind of, what I'm trying to achieve is a professional output because I feel like if I'm expecting my students to give up their home time um, to watch a video or class time to watch a video that I should have the kind of audio quality and the video quality as high as possible uh, so that students in my class and in my school and, and people all over the world can access that content and find use in it and value as well. Hmm. Do you teach from kind of textbooks or where do you get the exercises from to match your videos or vice versa? Um, the content is just stuff that, good question. Uh, we don't really have a textbook and we just have, English is predominantly skill-based so there's not a lot of content to go through. I'm actually one of I think only three or four English teachers that use this kind of approach for that reason, I think. Um, invariably, it's maths and science teachers who uh, get to, for us, the VCE level or the HSC level and or in you know the UK A-levels, GCSE sort of things. And they just say, well, there's too much content and too much curriculum to get through and we can't do it physically in that time. And so they use this instructional video flip learning type of approach just to fit all that stuff in and get through the content. And then that frees up the kind of things that I've been talking about, like formative assessment or in biology or those sort of things you can do more pracs with your students because they're getting the content before they come to the prac. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a way to overcome overstacked, overstacked or overfilled curriculums. Okay. So, Did But yeah, English, it's not that common. Okay, do teachers have to make their own videos or is it okay if they find some pre-made videos online and if it's okay to find them online, where, where are some good places to go? Um, YouTube's pretty good. Um, there's a guy named Joel Sperenza who did his um, PhD or maybe it was a master's thesis, I believe PhD on that very question, curate or create. Um, and not one is better than the other, but invariably, and this has been the discussions I've had with almost all the all of the teachers that I've spoken to this about, you get to a point where there's only so many Khan Academy videos that suit your context or there's only so many that you can source by YouTube that fit what you need mm. and then invariably there's a hole that you need to fill. So, you know, sadly there's not one expert teacher in kind of each state delivering content, you know, clearly aligned to the sort of curriculums in each of those settings. Uh, and even if they, even if there were, you'd probably, as an experienced teacher, probably still look at some of their videos and think, oh, well, I've always taught that in a different way or in a better way, or for my students, this will be better. Mm -hmm. So you can definitely get probably, I would say, around 80% of your content curated. 
in the sense that you're sourcing from other people. But then there's always going to be a small part which you're either going to have to direct teach or my preference would be to make a video of your own and then you might send it to the people that you know, you're building on or you're adding to their knowledge base. And then all of a sudden you're sharing your resources across the world with people you've never met kind of situation. Okay. So you've been supporting teachers to make this shift to kind of flipped approaches or using videos for quite a while now. What are some of the main uh, barriers that teachers often face when trying to make this transition? I would say the big one is the easiest one to fix. Um, so depending, obviously depending on the age range of teachers, but often if you said to a teacher like, oh, do you ever film anything for your students? They'll say, no, of course not. And then you say, okay, do you ever, have you ever FaceTimed or, you know, use WhatsApp to communicate with people via the internet? And they say, well, yeah, of course. Like, you know, that's, that's something I do regularly. So it's like they have the skill set and they use these things regularly. I mean, especially during this time, like everyone will be FaceTiming or Teamsing or Google Hangouting with hundreds of people each day. But the net, the hard part is to say, okay, well, why don't you use those same technologies, those same skill sets and those same tools with your students? And then often the, the, the impression is that that will take a lot of time. And in my experience, that's not the case. Um, even the sort of the higher level tools that I spoke about earlier, for me, like it only takes maybe like the same amount of time that it takes to record to edit it. So if it's a five minute video, it might take me 10 minutes and 10 minutes is still a pretty short amount of time. Uh, and a lot of it, I guess, is being focused on not being perfect with it, but just getting down something that is covers what you need it to do as quickly as you can and then getting it out there. When you say edit, is that something you can do with OBS Studio? Does that just mean like cut out this section where I kind of said the wrong thing then did a retake? Yeah, yeah. So um, for most most people when I'm presenting on this stuff, I just say make it a one button thing, start and then stop. And if you stuff it up completely, you stop and you start again. Uh, but the type of thing I'm talking about is more cut off the end, cut off the start. Uh, you, can't, you can't do it in OBS necessarily, but there's a million free tools that you can use. Um, the one I use costs a little bit of money, but that's obviously because I've been doing it for a little while. Um, especially like if you're doing it on your phone, nowadays you can edit everything within that and just cut things out and do that sort of stuff. Um, when I first started, like, you know, I used to edit. Um, I can recognize audio files, the bits when I go before I begin to speak. And so I used to edit out all of those. Wow. I used to edit out every breath that I took that I felt was wasting students' time. Um, I used to do it really kind of over overly fastidiously more than I needed um, but that I guess was part of the process like that was my way of giving feedback to myself that I wasn't that I was improving the way that I spoke basically so through the process of editing I became more aware of the kind of vocal tics and the things that annoyed me hearing myself talk and so that was my way of kind of doing that um, and then I've completely gone off your question but I think that's that's part of the the use of this like it's not often that a teacher comes into your class and gives you feedback on something as simple as your direct instruction and how good your you know analogies were and how clearly you spoke and how engaging you were but i think this is kind of one way of doing that independently mm, that's a really good idea the kind of a self-feedback loop i like it mm. um what are some of the common mistakes that you see teachers make when they first start to to make instructional videos uh 
me that very easy most common mistake is people i'll sit there with someone and i'll say okay how do i do this and then uh, we film uh, like a practice so it's them being blah 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 i'm clicking through a slide blah 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 thanks and then so we've just spent five minutes to waste our time because they've just learned how to do something that's as simple as clicking a button and then clicking stop at the end um so if when I'm at conferences or those sort of things or in a workshop, I'll actually get them to, before they do any of that, pick out something that they're actually going to teach and take them to somewhere where they can comfortably do that thing. And then they've actually produced something rather than just made a video that's them babbling and umming and ahhing to themselves. So that to me is the most common mistake that I see done. Um, beyond that, like there's not really that many ways that you can stuff it up. It's you teaching. And if you're any good at teaching, then you're, you're perfectly suited for this kind of skill set as well. That's great. Also, back to that editing, you said you can't do it within OBS. I've been trialing a software recently called Loom. I'm not sure if you've come across that one. Um, but mm. it automatically generates a, a web link um, for the video yep. and also you can trim the ends off and trim sections out of the middle of the video as well. So that might be a really, really easy software uh, for teachers to use. They can also choose whether they want to record their whole screen or just like a window within um within a, a browser or something like that. So that's a, mm. an option and we'll provide a link to that as well. Um, any any additional advice that you have for people who are keen to, to start making instructional videos? Um, well, I would just basically the hardest thing to overcome and the best piece of advice is just to, to do it firstly and then the more you do it, the more quickly you overcome that kind of impression of, oh, no, that's what I actually look like and that's what I actually sound like. Um, and as soon as you've over, the quicker you can overcome that, the better. Um, because I know a lot of teachers that say, yeah, yeah, I've been doing this for years and years and years, but it's posted, you know, within their internal LMS or maybe they only email it to, you know, the four staff in their team. Um, whereas I would suggest that everyone should put their stuff on YouTube, make it available, work out how to put some tags on there so that other people can find it. Um, just because we're all doing the same sort of work and kind of keeping your work to yourself doesn't necessarily benefit the broader profession. And so the sooner you can get over the fact that your sound, your the way you talk sounds different to the way that it sounds in your head uh, and you know the fact that you may not have had makeup on during that day and just get the content out there. Um, I think that's really important for the broader point that you know students around the world and teachers around the world can access that stuff. Um, but just you know, it's good to get it out there. And also, that's another another way of getting feedback. So, with 420 videos, I can tell you which ones were the most popular and which ones were perhaps the best based on instant statistics that say, well, you know. 12,000 people have watched this one. So what did you do there that you probably should be doing everywhere else? And then I watch that, watch and listen to that one back and go, okay. Um, and it kind of gives you a bit of an insight into what the world of education is about beyond your little school. Fantastic. Where can people um, go to, to find out more either about screencasting or to, to hear, hear more from Stephen Kolber? Um where can't they look? Um, I've, got a, I've got a YouTube channel called Mr. Kolber's Teaching. Kolber is spelled K-O-L-B-E-R. Um, there's a, the best place to look for like professional development on this stuff is uh, there's a group called the Flip Learning Global Initiative, and that's basically what it sounds like. 
Uh, they talk about firstly how what tech to use to produce these kind of things, which may or may not be different to the ones I'm talking about here. And then they talk about the pedagogical element. So the kind of steps that I talked about where once you've freed up your direct teaching, there are other ways that you can go out and out and about and think rethink the way that your classroom works and looks based on the fact that you've done these things. So those are the two places that are places I would suggest you go look. Cool. And I hear you've also got a segment on a podcast. I do, yeah, on the TER podcast, which has been going for about seven years apparently, which I didn't realize. Um, and that's, yeah, their goal is to kind of bridge practice, research and policy. So that's a lofty goal, as yours is linking research to teaching. Indeed. Stephen Colbert, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's been an incredibly practical uh, podcast for, for listeners. There's, we've spoken about a whole host of resources uh, for making instructional videos, uh, and I'm sure that it will help lots of people in these trying times. So thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this chapter of the ERRR podcast online education special, please share it with friends and colleagues. And please consider supporting the ongoing production of the ERRR podcast at patreon.com forward slash ERRR. Signing up as a patron helps to communicate to me the value that listeners are receiving from the podcast and helps to keep the production of the podcast financially sustainable into the future. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR. I hope that you enjoy the rest of this education special.